Blessed and merciful Father, as we now turn our attention to the preaching of your word, we recognize that we are a needy people. No preacher can cause your spirit to come and speak to your people. No listener can demand it of you. And so we would ask that you would do what we are incapable of doing, that you would bring your word to life and that you would speak to us. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Can you remember the last handwritten letter you received? I'm not referring to a a Christmas card or a birthday card from your great aunt. I I mean a, a proper letter. You know, like an email or a text message, but with ink instead of pixels. And on a really thin sliced piece of a dead tree instead of a screen. Preferably written in cursive. Maybe on decent stationery. Can you remember the last time you received a handwritten letter? The last time that someone took their time to sit down, compose their thoughts to you, and write it out. Then take those thoughts, fold them up, stuff it in an envelope, lick the adhesive, sealing it for your eyes only, rummaging through their junk drawer to find a stamp, and then moving their body to a place where the postman would pick it up. Do you remember the last time you received a handwritten letter? My guess is for most of you, probably not. Because unfortunately, it it has gone by the wayside. And we lose something culturally in our form of communication when we lose letters. There is an intentionality that text messages, snaps, direct messages, comments, and even face-to-face conversations simply lack. There is a purity to the communication of a letter because you can't interrupt the writer. You have to digest the fullness of their thought away from them, which makes it the preferred form of communication for rambling relatives and angry cowards and bashful lovers. And you might be wondering... Why all this waxing romantic over a nearly dead form of communication? And it's a good question. But the reason is that I would like to draw your attention today to a particular letter. It was one received by a man who's a pastor. His name is Ahmed. Ahmed was born in a Muslim state in a Muslim family in the country of India. And he came to faith when he was around 30 years old. And nearly immediately after coming to faith, he felt called to be an evangelist. And so with way, way, way less training than we would be comfortable with, he was sent out into the state of Kashmir. And he made a commitment that for seven years, every single day, he would visit 50 households to evangelize and plant churches. It was not easy. He was threatened. He was beaten on more than one occasion. And then, after being rejected by his family and the entirety of the community, came the letter. It was from an Islamic terrorist organization. 
and it identified itself as such on the envelope. I'm not familiar with Indian postmarking system, but for us, it would be the return address, right? From ISIS, P.O. Box. Sent through the mail, postmarked, stamped, everything. Sitting in his mailbox. He opened the letter, and I'm going to read you exactly what it said, translated into English, of course. Stop preaching to the people of Kashmir. Otherwise, we will come to your doorstep and shoot you. How would you feel, friends, holding this letter, penned by an Islamic terrorist, seeing where they wrote your home address with their own hand? What would you do? My guess is that for the majority of us, the answer is get the heck out of Dodge. Pack up. Go to the U.S. Seek religious asylum. But Ahmed stayed. He did not stay in that house. In fact, in the following 19 years, he moved his family 185 times. And on some level, we question the wisdom of that. I mean, if it is that dangerous, if it is actually that dangerous, are you really protecting your family? And practically speaking, wouldn't it just be better for the kids to come to the States for a couple of years, put down some roots, build some relationships with friends their own age. Ahmed could get some, some badly needed training at a Bible institute. And then after a couple of years, a little bit of respite, the heat will settle, then, then go back. Then just go back. This whole moving your whole family to a new house every five weeks for two decades, just to feel a semblance of safety, it, it seems like too much. But friends, what of the 30,000 households he would not have visited in those two years that he spent stateside? 30,000. The fruits of his labor are undeniable. He has planted churches in four out of the 10 districts in this state, which, by the way, has 4 million people living in it and is 91% Muslim. Hundreds of people mention him or people that have been saved through his ministry and their testimonies. And so to the worldly wise man, this is foolish. But I don't think anyone could disagree that this is redemptive. And this is the tension that we will see in our text today. Worldly zeal feigns wisdom to reject responsibility while Christian zeal appears foolish to bring redemption. One more time because it's wordy. I apologize. Worldly zeal feigns wisdom to reject responsibility while Christian zeal appears foolish to bring redemptions. We'll see this in three movements in our text today. The trial, the trouble, and the triumph. The trial, the trouble, and the triumph. Let's begin with the trial, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Okay, right out of the gate, we have to pause here and ask what on earth is going on? Even if you were here last week and you heard the end of Pastor Pete's sermon, P 
Peter had healed a guy. So how did we get here? I mean, who are they? Who are them? Who is this council? And dear friends, I do understand the confusion. See, as we are working through the book of Acts this time, we are highlighting the book's general narrative through particular stories. The goal is to work through the book, zooming in on particular texts. And so our end is that it would be helpful towards getting a big picture understanding of what's happening in the book of Acts with more specific information that can be provided by a one-sermon overview. So the real question is what happened between last week and now? What happens between Acts 3 and the end of Acts 5? Well, notably, out of the bounds of our narrative this morning, Ananias and Sapphira attempted to deceive the Holy Spirit and were slain by the Holy Spirit. Pastor Craig mentioned that in his sermon two weeks ago entitled The Church. So by all means, uh, feel free to check that out if you have questions about that passage. But for our purposes this morning, after healing the man in Pastor Pete's text, the apostles are arrested by the Sadducees. This is a powerful religious group of Jews that dominate the Jewish political council called the Sanhedrin. But why arrest the apostles? You normally don't arrest people who heal people. Well, Luke says that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed that the apostles proclaimed Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You see, to the eyes of the Sadducees, it is as though the Christians were taking side with their religious and political opponents, the Pharisees. Particularly in this raging debate on the existence or lack thereof of an afterlife. The Sadducees says there was no life after death. So the Christian message then, that Christ rose from the dead, seems like a vote of confidence to the camp of the Pharisees. And to make matters worse... The apostles are spreading this message in the temple, which was the domain of the Sadducees. So this political body, the Sanhedrin, is made up mostly of Sadducees, and they charge the apostles not to preach in the name of Jesus because they don't like them telling people there's an afterlife. All right, everyone's still on board? Good. Despite this lawful command, the apostles continue to preach in the temple. And to great effect, the work of the Spirit through their preaching has won some 5,000 converts. And then, and then, the Spirit of God begins to testify to the truth of the gospel through many miraculous healings. So Luke records that more than ever, multitudes were added. So the jealous Ananias, the high priest, and Sadducee decides to arrest the apostles again. But since it's at the end of the day, he wants to go home. He throws them in prison to hold them for the night. And his plan is, we'll just have trial in the morning. One problem, though. When morning comes, the apostles aren't in the jail. They were freed overnight by an angel. So the cell is locked tight, but it is empty. So where are the apostles? Well, they're right where the angel told them to be, which is exactly where they were arrested last time, in the temple, preaching. So predictably, 
the Sanhedrin, this group of Jewish leaders, simply arrest the apostles again. And they begin the trial that they planned on having. Verses 27 and 28. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The high priest brings up the command the Sanhedrin previously gave the apostles. And legally speaking, as far as order and human government go, this is perfectly reasonable. The head of the council is rebuking the apostles for not following the charge they were given. Even this idea of charge is, is legal in nature. It's like a law has been passed because it came from the proper governmental authorities. Since the Sadducees, who again make up the majority of this body, were often in close collaboration with the Romans, there's an even greater air of governmental legitimacy than just a religious group. And yet to their eyes, these apostles, they're not content with just breaking the law. They have to go so far as to besmirch the good name of the council by accusing them of murder and spreading this message to everyone. And it can be really, really easy for us to not recognize how serious this is. We like to fix it on what a good job these guys have done. Everyone knows that that's remarkable. But we cannot forget what is really going on here. This is not just some weird group of religious fanatics clashing with another weird group of religious fanatics that we happen to agree with. The apostles are in real danger. And they look like fools. They look like they wanted to get caught. Returning to the scene of the crime two extra times after committing the crime? The Sanhedrin is not a group to play with. Remember, these are the people who had enough power to orchestrate the murder of the Messiah. They're laying criminal charges at a group led by an unlearned backwater preacher. They seem to hold all the cards. In every way possible, Peter is outgunned. They are smarter than him. They have the power of the law behind them. They have the tradition and the temple behind them. They have more money, more status, more connections than he does. And most dangerously, they are zealous about keeping their power. So how does an unlearned backwater preacher respond to their charges? Verse 29. But Peter and the apostle answered, apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, Peter is singled out here because like most of the time we see him in scripture, he is talking. There is no doubt that all of the other apostles agreed with Peter, which is why Luke tells us Peter and the other apostles answered, yet records only one quote as though it was one person responding. This is not a dialogue. But what a response it is. Right out of the gate. Why'd you do that? We must obey God rather than men. Why are they still proclaiming the gospel? Why were they so easy to arrest again and again? Why would they be so foolish? Because they must obey God and not men. Because they are conscience bound to submit to God. Because of the example set by Christ. How do you do with this? How quickly do you second guess things you know God has commanded because of the opinions of others? How often do you ignore the plain teaching of Scripture for the sake of appearance and esteem? 
When other people's opinions are immediate and tangible, it is easy to prize that over true obedience. But dear friends, never forget that what seems like foolishness is often Christian zeal that brings redemption. Peter continues, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is incredibly bold. Peter now flips the script on them. And his defense becomes a charge against these men. Peter knows what the Sadducees are mad about. And he goes right for the jugular. Why are we saying that Jesus was raised? Because God raised him. Which means there is life after death. Moreover, he's saying, and we're all witnesses to it. They have seen the resurrected Christ. And the Holy Spirit witnesses it as well in the efficacy of their message and in the miracles he performs. This isn't all the apostles witness though. No, friends, they remember Good Friday. They remember these leaders so zealous for their worldly positions, feigning the wisdom to judge God himself. They witnessed the zeal of our Lord who appeared the ultimate fool as he who claimed to be God hung on a cross to redeem his people. And now he is savior and leader of Israel. It's clear from Peter's accusation that these men in particular bear a unique portion of guilt for Jesus' death, which implies that they're not actually a part of Israel. That's who Jesus was savior for. That's who he was leader for. If you're not submitting to him as leader, you're not who you claim to be. It's a portion of Peter's charge. Peter has charged them and now it is no longer the apostles who are on, are on trial. He has poked the proverbial bear, which can only spell trouble. So our second point now, the trouble, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Remember, these are dangerous men. And the idea of being enraged here, the, the word means a saw cutting into their heart. Old translations will say torn asunder. It is nearly an immeasurable emotional response, an incredible outpouring of anger. In fact, some commentators suggest that the reason this turn of phrase is used, sawn to the heart, is because inside of the room, you could actually hear the grinding of the Sanhedrin's teeth and it sounded like saw blades sawing into wood. Can you feel the tension? Put yourself in Thomas's sandals for just one minute. See if we can wrap our heads around this. You're a witness to everything Peter's mentioned here. You were arrested less than 12 hours ago. While you were chained up in jail, an angel shows up and frees you and tells you to go back and preach again. But you probably haven't slept in over a day. You're probably hungry and thirsty. And you also know that these men in front of you 
absolutely have the power and now the inclination to kill you. Feeling on edge or threatened is a bit of an understatement. But now, before any action is taken, before any pronouncements of guilt, before anyone picks up a stone, a voice calls out. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Here we meet a third player in our story. And Gamaliel is not an uncommon name at this time. Maybe we should bring it back. But this Gamaliel here, this Gamaliel is the Gamaliel. He's the son of Simeon, the grandson of Hillel, the teacher of the Pharisee Saul. This Gamaliel is one of seven rabbis in the history of Judaism to be exalted to a status above rabbi, to become Rabban Gamaliel. He is still to this day interacted with by Jewish scholars as they read the Mishnah and the Talmud. There is no other Pharisee who could command so much respect from these Sadducees. Think of it. What Republican could seize control in a room full of Democrats ready to kill someone with the word? Or vice versa. What Democrat could stand up and stop a room full of Republicans from killing someone that they were intent to kill? When these Sadducees want to murder the apostles, he stands up and is able to take control of a room filled with his political and religious rivals. He actually wrestles control away from the high priest and usurps the role of moderator. So he sends the apostles out and enters into a, an executive session, if you will. This is a man of incredible power. Yet it begs a question. If the apostles aren't in the room, how do we know what he said? If only the Sanhedrin is left, how could we possibly have a record of what was said? And the answer, some of you already are thinking it, I'm sure, almost certainly is because of the apostle Paul. We know from the next chapter that at, around this time, Paul is in the city of Jerusalem where this is taking place. Paul is a student of Gamaliel. He's not called Paul yet. But he would have absolutely had access to a meeting of the Sanhedrin. We also know that he traveled with Luke, which means he had access to relay the story to Luke. So while it certainly is possible that the Holy Spirit directly gave this revelation to Luke and he wrote it down apart from any other communication, I would say it's probably more likely that as Luke is doing his research about the early church, he has a conversation with his buddy Paul and Paul says, oh yeah, here's what Gamaliel said. What did Gamaliel say? Verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Some theologians and commentators argue that this passage shows us that Gamaliel was a secret Christian like Nicodemus. Unfortunately, I, I think 
that a simple examination of Gamaliel's reasons disproves their case entirely. Rather, Luke here is meaning for Gamaliel to play the heel, the opposite of Peter, displaying that worldly zeal feigns wisdom in order to reject responsibility. It is not that different than Adam. To begin with, Gamaliel's arguments are just bad. He compares Jesus to two people who attempted to violently overthrow the Romans. One of them claimed to have some sort of divine empowerment. He said that he could split a sea. If he walked up to it, he could split the waters. These men could not be less like Jesus. Jesus led no armed rebellion. No, in fact, one of his followers harmed someone, he reattached his ear. To be sure, Jesus had divine powers, and yet constantly as he's healing people, he says, don't tell anyone. He did not boast in his abilities. Additionally, these movements they created are entirely different. Both of these men amassed a small following in their lives, 400, and then some people. But Jesus had thousands following him. And after his death, that number has only grown Remember, there were 5,000 followers before miraculous healings, which led Luke to then say, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. These messiahs are not the same. Their followers are not the same. The numbers of their followers are not the same. This argument is just bad. It's just a bad argument. It shows us that Gamaliel doesn't actually understand who Jesus was at all. He's bought the party line. Jesus was an insurgent. But what it does do, what it does is it offers a conclusion that sounds so pious while requiring zero work. 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. This sounds really nice, really, really wise. It's like the first century version of let go and let God. It's absolutely true, but it's horribly platitudinal. Of course, of course, any man-made undertaking will fail. These men know this. They are Torah scholars. They have it all memorized. They know the story of Babel. They know of Abram's attempt to create an heir apart from God's plan in Lot and Ishmael. Of course, anything God establishes cannot be destroyed. They know the Exodus. So if they know all of this, why is Gamaliel making this speech? I mean, if he is a respected scholar, why is his reasoning so bad? Why would this scholar who still prays today say something that is so vapid, so meaningless? It's because Gamaliel is attempting to excuse inaction with nice-sounding words. There is no substance because there is no substance. Like these ones. You might even be found opposing God. Might? Might? You mean you don't know Gamaliel? You're supposed to know, Gamaliel. That's what you're supposed to do. 
You're a scholar of the Old Testament to tell us when the Messiah has come. This sort of weak stance cannot stand. Either Jesus is not the Messiah, and then they need to punish these blasphemers who are breaking the ninth commandment by bearing false witness. They must. Or Jesus is the Messiah, and they must repent and follow him and lead all of Israel to do the same. But that sounds like a lot of work. Gamaliel has no interest in that. Because worldly zeal feigns wisdom to reject responsibility. And Jesus himself forbids that kind of arm distance take. He says to not be with him is to be against him. And so in his passivity, Gamaliel finds himself working against God like he warned. For you, friends, how often do you find yourself not taking a stand? When do you embrace the colloquial wisdom to excuse your action? Is it tithing? Church attendance? Discipleship of your children? Friends who are bad influences? A lack of emphasis on devotional time? Where do you embrace sin in the name of wisdom? Dear friend, churn from such folly. Ask that God would work in you to grow you in your zeal for him and not for the things of the world. Because to grow in zeal for the world is to court trouble. But now, our third movement, the triumph, verse 39. The end of verse 39. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They take his advice, and they don't kill them. So in a way, Gamaliel saves them. However, they do need to save face. They can't appear weak to these new upstarts. And so, while doing absolutely nothing of consequence, they again make a command that they know is going to be broken, saying, don't proclaim the name of Christ. And then they beat them. And at this point, you may be wondering, um, Riker, do you mind explaining to me how this is triumph? This doesn't look like triumph to me. But it is. Remember, 11 of these 12 men ran away like cowards the last time that they were confronted by the Sanhedrin. They abandoned Christ to die on the cross. And now empowered by his spirit, they stand triumphant as they each received the same 39 lashes that Christ did before he was nailed to the cross. It is publicly shameful. It is humiliating. In fact, this is the very first persecution. And they endure it well. well they do even more than endure it well. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They don't just endure it, they rejoice in it. They're so zealous they can rejoice in their own suffering. And in doing so, they redeem their suffering as an offering to God. Their honor is the sacrifice here. They become more like their savior and leader. And they suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is the uncomfortable turning point. Are you willing to do this, friends? I don't mean be arrested or physically abused. It's possible that's what the Lord will ask of you, but 
In reality, probably not. Our brothers and sisters overseas, probably not. I mean, are you prepared to rejoice in your suffering? Termination of a job, life not going the way that you want, in heartbreak. Are you willing to rejoice in those things? Not to inflict them upon yourself, no self-flagellation. I'm referring to a radical reprocessing of your suffering. Because you live in a culture that says, pain, good, pleasure, bad. Are you willing to reject that idea and embrace a Christian zeal that radically reforms your understanding of everything that happens in your life? It is how your suffering is redeemed. When you realize that even the worst things you experience are in God's infinite goodness used to bring about his good ends. You say, even this? Yes, friend, even that. Because the worst thing that ever happened brought about the greatest good. You know this, friends. The God-man himself hung on the cross, suffering for your sins. You who are dead in your sins have been redeemed by the death of Christ. You are the object of his affection. As our pardon said this morning, his very child. Friends, the Father's zeal for you appeared foolish. And yet it brought redemption. Is this new to you? Or perhaps the Spirit of God is applying this in a way that he never has before. Dear friends, embrace this. Embrace it. Forsake your former worldly folly and embrace the gospel. But if you know this and you love this, then receive this charge from the apostle's example. 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now I realize that for most of us, for the vast majority of us, we cannot exactly copy what the apostle did. Admittedly, we don't even have a temple filled with unbelievers prepared and primed to hear the gospel. And most of us could not visit someone else's house every single day and keep our job, let alone execute our role within our family well. And I get it. Because to my shame, my schedule is often packed to the gills too. But what would it look like for you to make a concerted effort to reach out to others more? What would it look like for you to preach to them and teach them? And you say, easy for you to say from a pulpit, someone who teaches for their vocation, but you misunderstand me. Because I don't mean either of those in the formal sense. I mean preacher in the sense of a herald, a declarer. And everyone can do that. Everyone can declare what is true. Everyone can preach the good news that the Christ is Jesus. And I mean teacher in the sense of a discipler. And everyone can do that. Everyone can live their lives with others, allowing them to learn from your failures and your successes. Some of you know you can do these things. And I praise God for how he is redeeming things through your zeal. But one last word for those of you who think they can't. Those of you who say, this is impossible for me. I can't serve people in this way. You know who you are. 
You can do these things, friends. And you can do them with full confidence because in so doing, you are participating in the work of God. And straight from Gamaliel's mouth, if it is the work of God, it cannot be stopped. So participate with zeal, knowing that God will redeem things through you. May we be a people who reject worldly zeal in order to embrace Christian zeal. Would we rejoice in all the ways God would use us to redeem his creation? Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. Please grow us in your zeal and help us to esteem your approval over the approval of man. Please use us to your redeeming end. We ask this in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.